Chapter 9 Choosing Happiness Designing a career and a life requires not only that you have lots of options and good alternatives, as we've discussed, it also requires the ability to make good choices and live into those choices with confidence, which means you accept them and don't second-guess yourself. Regardless of where you've started, what stage of life or career you are in, how great or dire you perceive your circumstances to be, we would bet our last dollar that there is one goal you all have in this life you are designing. Happiness. Who doesn't want to be happy? We want to be happy, and we want our students to be happy, and we want you to be happy. In life design, being happy means you choose happiness. Choosing happiness doesn't mean you should click your heels together three times while wishing to go to your happy place. The secret to happiness in life design isn't making the right choice. It's learning to choose well. You can do all the work of life design, ideating and prototyping and taking action, all leading to some really cool alternative life design plans. But this doesn't guarantee you'll be happy and get what you want. Maybe you'll end up happy and getting what you want, and maybe you won't. We say maybe because being happy and getting what you want are not about future risks and unknowns or whether you've picked the right alternatives. It's about how you choose and how you live your choices once they're made. All of your hard work can be undone by poor choosing. Not so much by making the wrong choice. That's a risk, but frankly, not a big one, and usually one you can recover from. As by thinking wrongly about your choosing. Adopting a good, healthy, smart, life-designed choosing process is critical to a happy outcome. Many people are using a choosing model that cuts themselves off from their most important insights and actually prevents them from being happy with their choices after they've been made. We see it all the time, and studies agree. Many people guarantee an unhappy outcome by how they approach this all-important design step of choosing. On the flip side, choosing well almost guarantees a happy and life-giving outcome, while setting you up for more options and a better future. Dysfunctional Belief to be happy, I have to make the right choice. Reframe. There is no right choice, only good choosing. The life design choosing process. In life design, the choosing process has four steps. First, you gather and create some options. Then you narrow down your list to your top alternatives. Then you finally choose. And then, last but not least, you agonize over the choice agonize over whether you've done the right thing. In fact, we encourage you to spend countless hours, days, months, or even decades agonizing. Just kidding. People can waste years agonizing over the choices they've made. But agonizing is a time suck. Of course we don't want you to agonize. That's not the fourth step in the life design choosing process. The fourth step in our process is to let go of our unnecessary options and move on embracing our choice fully so we can get the most from it. We need to understand each of these choosing steps to appreciate the important difference between good choosing, which results in reliably happy outcomes and more future prospects, and bad choosing, which preconditions us for an unhappy experience. Step 1. Gather and Create Options Gathering and creating options is what we've been discussing throughout this book. Having good insights about yourself, Exploring options about where to engage with the world and prototyping experiences are the ways that your life design process generates ideas, alternatives, and viable options that you can pursue. All pursued, of course, with a curious mindset in which you're looking for latent wonderfulness 
and approached with a bias to action versus overthinking. We won't spend any more time on option generation here other than to tell you, again, to write your work view and life view, create mind maps, do your three Odyssey plan alternatives, and prototype conversations and experiences. You can use these option generating tools for any area of your life. Step 2. Narrow down the list. Some people feel they don't have enough or any options. Other people, and most designers, feel they've got too many. If you've got too few, then go back to all those suggestions we've already made, step one, and invest the time needed to cultivate more ideas and options. It may take weeks or months to build up a list you really like, which is just fine. After all, it's your life we're designing here, and this is not going to happen overnight. Now, once you've got a hefty list of options, chances are that you're struggling with all the possibilities. You look over all your ideas and all the suggestions other people have given you and all the things you could possibly do with your life, and it can feel overwhelming. You find yourself unable to choose, or at least unable to choose with confidence, so you figure you've done something wrong. You must not have done enough homework and understood your options well enough. If only I had better information and a clearer picture of these options, I'd know which one to choose. And off you go to do more research, interviewing, and prototyping. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work because, even though not having enough information is sometimes a real problem, it's usually not the core issue. By the time most of us are getting close to an important decision, we've done our homework. We may not know everything there is to know. In fact, all our investigating actually makes clearer to us what we don't know than what we do know. So we're pretty sure more research would be helpful. But that's not it. If you're like most of us, then the reason your choosing process is stuck isn't about your knowledge. It's about the length of your list and your relationship with all those options. We can most easily make this point clear by looking at how people buy jam. Professor Sheena Iyengar from Columbia Business School is a psychoeconomist who specializes in decision-making. Her famous jam study was done using specialty jams in a grocery store. One week, the researchers set up a table in the store showing off six different specialty jams with snazzy flavors like kiwi orange, strawberry lavender. You get the idea. Then they watched how the shoppers behaved, who stopped to look, and, of those who stopped, who actually bought some jam. The first week, with six jams on display, 40% of the shoppers stopped to check out the six jams, and about a third of them bought one, about 13% of the shoppers. A few weeks later, in the same store, with the same time frame, the researchers came back with 24 jams. This time, 60% of the shoppers in the store stopped by, a 50% increase over the six-jam display. But with 24 jams on display, only 3% of the shoppers bought one. What does this research tell us? First, that we love having options. Whoa, 24 jams, let's check this out. And second, that we can't deal with too many of them. Ooh, um, so many. Can't decide. Let's go get some cheese. In fact, most minds can choose effectively between only three to five options. If we're faced with more than that, our ability to make a choice begins to wane. Many more than that, and our ability to choose completely freezes. It's just the way our brains are wired. We're attracted to having alternatives, and our modern culture almost idolizes options for their own sake. Get a lot of options. Keep your options open. Don't get locked in. We hear this sort of thinking all the time, and it seems to make sense, but there absolutely can be too much of this good option thing. 
When you toss in the internet and the fact that we can now be aware of seemingly every idea and activity on the planet after a subsequent Google search, most of us are suffering a pandemic attack of too many options. The key is to reframe your idea of options by realizing that if you have too many options, you actually have none at all. If you get frozen in front of your daunting list of possibilities, then in fact, you have no options. Remember that options only actually create value in your life when they are chosen and realized. We often teach our students that when an option grows up, it becomes a choice. So when you've got 24 jam options, you actually have zero options. Once you understand that in choice making, 24 equals zero. And boy, is it hard to believe when you love your options and work so hard to find and come up with them. Then you're free to take the next step, narrowing down. So, what exactly do you do with too many options? Simple. Get rid of some. First, if it turns out that a lot of your options group together into categories, you can break your list down into smaller sublists. That may help you get your top contender for each option type. But eventually, you'll be in that overwhelmed by too many options place, and you'll have to get rid of a bunch of those jams. How? Just cross them off your list. If you've got a list of 12 options, cross out 7, then rewrite your list with just the remaining 5 on it and go to step 3. Most of our students and clients freak out at this idea. You can't just cross options off. What if I cross out the wrong one? We understand. But we're not kidding. You just cross them off. Remember, if you've got too many options, you really don't have any. So you have nothing to lose. And you won't cross off the wrong one. We call this the pizza Chinese effect. We've all experienced it. Ed sticks his head in your office and says, Hey, Paula, we're going out for lunch. Want to come? Sure. We're going to choose between pizza and Chinese food. Do you have a preference? Nah, whatever's good. Okay, we're getting pizza. No, wait, I want Chinese. In that situation, when you gave your first answer, whatever's good, you thought you meant it. You didn't know that you had a preference until an unwanted decision occurred as a fait accompli. Only after a choice was named did you become aware of your preference. So you really can't lose when you're shortening your list of options. If you cross out the wrong ones, you'll know afterwards. You may have to go as far as crossing out seven of the twelve and rewriting the new clean list of just five before you realize it, but if it's wrong, you'll know. Trust us when we tell you that you can trust yourself. And if you find that you can't choose among the five alternatives either, Check which of the two very different reasons might apply. The most common reason is that you're still just in agony over losing those other seven options and are refusing to let them go. If that's the case, then do whatever you need to in order to shorten your list. Burn the list of the seven you rejected. Put it all down for a day or two, then come back to your list of five later and treat that as the list, not the shortened list. But do eventually get going. If, however, you can't act on your list of five because you really can't find any preferences or meaningful distinctions between them, then you win. You've just discovered that you have a can't-lose situation on your hands. This means that all five options are strategically worthwhile for you with no real distinctive difference. They will all work for you, which leaves you to choose based on secondary considerations. The drive is easier. The logo is cool. The story will be sexier at cocktail parties. The point is, you want to leave the store with some jam. Step 3. Choose discerningly. 
Now, once you've done the preliminary work of gathering and narrowing down, and yes, you do want to gather lots of options up front, choice overload notwithstanding, because then you're choosing from the best list, the hard part starts actual choosing. To choose well, we need to understand how our brains work in the process of choosing. Where do good choices come from, and how do we know when we know? Fortunately, we are now living in an era of unprecedented progress in brain research, and we're learning tons about how we think, remember, and decide. In 1990, John Meyer and Peter Salovey wrote the seminal scholarly article launching the concept of emotional intelligence and proposing that, in achieving success and happiness, our EQ was as important as, and in many situations, more important than our IQ, measuring our cognitive intelligence. In 1995, the New York Times science writer Dan Goleman popularized their ideas in his book Emotional Intelligence, and a cultural phenomenon was launched. Emotional intelligence is a phrase everybody has heard and has some regard for, but few people fully understand what it means, and fewer still are learning and benefiting from it. It turns out that the part of our brain that is working to help us make our best choices is in the basal ganglia. It's part of the ancient base brain, and as such does not have connections to our verbal centers, so it does not communicate in words. It communicates in feelings and via connections to the intestines, those good old gut feelings. The memories that inform this choice-guiding function in our brains, Goleman refers to as the wisdom of the emotions, and by this he means the collected experience of what has and hasn't worked for us in life and what we draw upon in evaluating a decision. Our own wisdom is then made available to us emotionally, as feelings, and intestinally, as a bodily gut response. Therefore, in order to make a good decision, we need access to our feelings and gut reactions to the alternatives. Remember that default response to being stuck on a decision, I must need more information? We can now see that this is exactly what we do not need. It is our two noisy brains talking at us constantly as they try to cogitate our way to a good decision that are getting in the way of connecting to our gut feelings on the decision. It is very important to have good information available, to do lots of homework, to take lots of notes and make spreadsheets and comparisons and talk to experts, etc., etc., etc. But once that work is done, led by the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which runs the executive functions of coding, listing, and categorizing, we need access to that wisdom center where our well-informed emotional knowing can help us discern the better choices for us. We define discernment as decision-making that employs more than one way of knowing. We mostly use cognitive knowing, all that good, objective, organized, informational kind of knowing, the sort of knowing that gets you A's in school. But we also have other ways of knowing, including the affective form of intuitive, spiritual, and emotional knowing. Add to those both social knowing with others and kinesthetic knowing in our bodies. An incredibly skilled therapist friend of Dave's always knew when she was getting to an important issue with a client, her left knee would start to ache. She didn't know why it was her left knee, but over years of attentive practice, she came to trust what her knee had to tell her. Because she learned to listen to her knee, she was able to make better decisions and better serve clients by having access to that awareness. The key to step three is making discerning decisions by applying more than one way of knowing, and in particular, not applying just cognitive judgment by itself, which is informed but not reliable on its own. We aren't suggesting making only emotional decisions either. We all have examples of emotions getting people in trouble, though usually those are impulse emotions, and that's a very different thing. 
so we are not saying to swap your brain for your heart or your gut. We're inviting you to integrate all of your decision-making faculties and to be sure you make space so your emotional and intuitive ways of knowing can surface in the process. In other words, don't forget to listen to your knee or your gut or your heart, too. Doing this requires that you educate and mature your access to and awareness of your emotional, intuitive, and spiritual ways of knowing, or however you may name these affective aspects of our shared humanity. For centuries, the most common affirmed path to such maturity has been that of personal practices such as journaling, prayer, or spiritual exercises, meditation, integrated physical practices like yoga or tai chi, and so on. We don't have the space, nor do we claim the expertise to coach you on forming your set of personal practices, but we do encourage you to do so. The reason practices work to give you better access to your best wisdom in discerning a good decision relates precisely to the nature of such insights. Emotional, intuitive, and spiritual forms of knowing are usually subtle, quiet, and even shy. Rarely do people get access to their deepest wisdom by rushing around a few hours before a deadline and talking a lot or surfing on the web. It's a slower, quieter thing. Practices are just that, practice. We both practice regularly, month in and month out, especially during our off-season when there's no pressure to perform, and we can focus on just doing the practice and gaining strength and balance. The time for gaining maturity by practice isn't during the playoffs, when things are stressful and demanding. Decision-making is stressful, so the best time to prepare for good choosing is when there's no choice at stake. That's when you can invest in your emotional intelligence and spiritual maturity so that those muscles are strong and trained when it's decision or game time. The best time to get ready for step three is months or years before the choosing. That means the best time is right now. Today is the best day to start making that investment. Here's one specific technique you can try that emphasizes accessing the wisdom of your emotions. Grok it. Grokking. In his 1960s sci-fi classic, Stranger in a Strange Land, Robert Heinlein invented the word grok to describe a way of knowing that Martians employ. It means to understand something deeply and completely, so much so that you feel you've become one with it. Because of its rarity, Martians don't just understand what water is or drink water, they grok it. Now grok has entered into a more common cultural use. I grok that is sort of like I get that only more so. It's like, I get that, on steroids. When you finally get down to making a choice from your narrowed-down list of alternatives and you've cognitively evaluated the issues and emotionally and meditatively contemplated the alternatives, it may be time to grok it. To grok a choice, you don't think about it. You become it. Let's say you've got three alternatives. Pick any one of them and stop thinking about it. Choose to think for the next one to three days that you are the person who has made the decision to pick alternative A. Choice A is your reality right now. When you brush your teeth in the morning, you do so having chosen A. When you sit at a red light, you're waiting to proceed towards your destination related to living in alternative A. You may or may not actually say things to other people about this, such as, oh yeah, I'm moving to Beijing in May, because such statements will cause confusion later. But you get the idea. You'll just live in your head as the person in an alternative A reality. You are not thinking about alternative A from your current reality as a struggling choice maker. You are living calmly as one who has chosen A. 
After one to three days of this, how long is up to you in a matter of taste? Then take at least a day or two off to be your regular self and reset. Then do the same thing with alternative B, then another reset break, then alternative C. Then one more reset break and finally a thoughtful reflection on what those experiences were like and which one of those people you might most like to be. This technique isn't guaranteed, no such techniques are, but you can see how the intention here is to allow your alternative forms of knowing, emotional, spiritual, social, and intuitive, to have some room to express themselves to you and thereby complement the evaluative cognitive knowing, which, if you're like most of us, is the dominant form of thinking and choosing you rely on. Step four, let go and move on. Before we discuss the step of letting go, it's important to address, at least briefly, why the fourth step is not agonize. Agonizing looks like this. Did I do the right thing? Am I sure this is really the best decision? What if I'd done option four instead? I wonder if I can go back and do it all over again. If you've no idea what we're talking about here, consider yourself unusually fortunate. Thank your parents for good brain chemistry DNA and skip ahead. But if you're like most of us, these are familiar questions. We hear a lot of groans of recognition when we say, and the last step is agonize about the decision over and over. Those groans are a signal of our shared humanity in this experience of decision-making. The reason we're agonizing is that we care about our lives and the lives of others. These decisions matter, and we want to do our best to give the future its best possible chance. We want to make good decisions, but of course, we can't possibly know if we've done so right away. Unknowns are always out there, and none of us can see the future accurately. So how do we beat this post-decision agony thing? It turns out that our mindset about how to make a good decision is as important as which decision we make. It seems obvious that the best way to be happy with a choice is to make the best choice. Simple enough, except it's impossible. You can't make the best choice because you can't know what the best choice was until all the consequences have played out. You can work on making the best choice you can, given what's knowable at the moment, but if your goal is to make the best choice, you won't be able to know if you've done it. Your inability to know that keeps you focused on whether or not you did the right thing and keeps you rehearsing the alternatives not chosen. This is called agonizing. And all that rehashing drains satisfaction with the choice you did make and distracts you from getting energetically ahead on the choice you have made. Dan Gilbert at Harvard has looked at this area and demonstrated the effect letting go of your options has in a study evaluating how people made decisions about different Monet art prints. He asked people to rank five different Monet prints according to their preference, numbering them from one to five. Whichever prints the subjects ranked, numbers three and four, he said the experimenters happened to have spare copies of and were letting the subjects take one home with them. Of course, most people took the one they had ranked number three. Then, interestingly, the experimenters told some of the people that they could swap the one they took for the other one later if they wanted to. And other people were told that whatever print they took home was it, no swapping. After a few weeks, the experimenters checked back with the subjects. The people who had been told they could swap their prints, even though they had not done so, were less happy with their choices than the people who had chosen the exact same prints but had been told their choice was irreversible. It turns out that reversibility is not conducive to establishing reliable happiness with the decision. Apparently, 
Just the invitation to reconsider and keep your options open makes us doubt and devalue our choice. But wait, it gets worse. In his book, The Paradox of Choice, the researcher Barry Schwartz informs us that this nasty little feature of how our brain handles decisions goes even further. When we make a decision in the face of many options, or just while perceiving that there are lots of other options that we don't even know about, we are less happy with our choice. The problem here is not just the options we had and didn't pursue, the options we keep open. It's that mountain of options we never even had time to check out. The perception that there are gazillions of possibilities that may have been great, but that we never got to, is a powerful force against being at peace with our choice-making. Even if we don't know what it was, there must have been a better option out there, and we missed it. In the Internet-powered, globalized world, there are always a gazillion options. So we are now more capable of being unhappy with our choices than any generation in history has been. Yay for us. The key is to remember that imagined choices don't actually exist, because they're not actionable. We are not trying to live a fantasy life. We are trying to design a real and livable life. If we burden ourselves with knowing everything about our decisions and discovering every option possible, which, of course, you should do if you're going to make the best choice, we'd never decide. In life design, we know there are countless possibilities, but we aren't stymied by that fact. We revel in exploring a few possibilities, then take action by starting with a choice. Only by taking action can we build our way forward. So, let's get better and better at building, by getting better and better at letting go of the options we don't need any longer. And now you have the confidence to know that you can always get more options in the future, just the way you got these. This is the key to choosing happiness and being happy with our choices. When in doubt, let go and move on. It's really that simple. We're not saying you pretend you don't know about the roads not taken, or that you will never again discover something halfway down the path and decide to back up and make a correction. What we are saying is that there is a smarter way to proceed which will significantly enhance your ability to be successful in implementing your choices and lead to happiness and satisfaction on the journey. Do yourself the favor of getting lots of options, then culling the list down to a short and manageable size, five max. Then make the best choice you can, given the time and resources available to you. Get on with it and build your way forward. Note that if you're doing this with prototype iteration, you don't have too much at stake and you will be able to adjust as you go before you really reach a significant investment. And once you make a choice, then embrace your choice and go with it. When the questions that lead to agonizing creep into your head, evict the thoughts and direct your energy into living well the decisions you've made. Pay attention and learn as you go, of course, but don't get caught with your eyes fixated on the rearview mirror of decision regret. This letting go step relies primarily on personal discipline. Keep your reframed understanding of decision-making handy and be sure to win the internal argument with yourself when you're tempted to rehash and ruminate. Put in place the support you need to stick with it. Find a life design collaborator or team to help remind you why you made the choice or choices you did. Make a journal entry about your decision and reread it when you get confused. Find what works to enable yourself to enjoy your choices fully. Dysfunctional belief. Happiness is having it all. Reframe. Happiness is letting go of what you don't need.
letting go by grabbing on. Andy was a top pre-med student. Except he wasn't really a pre-med. He was a pre-public health or a pre-med tech entrepreneur student. Andy had two primary ideas about his future and one backup, all in response to the same big mission, fix healthcare. Andy could see that the healthcare system needed massive reform with significant increases in preventive care and wellness management if we were ever going to fix healthcare's disproportionate drain on the economy and the inaccessibility of medicine to all but the wealthy. He thought that there were two ways that he could be most effective at making an impact. He could become an influential healthcare public policy advisor, or he could become a medical technology entrepreneur. Though it was out of vogue among his friends to consider getting involved in government and the public sector, Andy could see that only the people adjusting the really big control dials on healthcare were going to be in a position to cause deep change. As far as medical technology, he knew that there was a lot happening in that sphere, and new technology could spur behavior changes that could possibly get traction faster, since they moved at the speed of the marketplace, not politics. His backup plan was to just be a doctor. It sounded funny to say it that way, given how respected the noble role of physician is in our society, and especially in his Asian extended family. But that's how he always said it to himself. He wasn't being dismissive, he was being honest. His backup plan was an insurance policy in the event he couldn't find a way to make a wide social impact and needed to redirect his efforts to a smaller playing field. He figured that an individual doctor certainly could make an impact within his practice, and possibly even in his local hospitals and region. Maybe that was a path to offering a shining example of what better healthcare could be. Which way to choose? Actually, that wasn't the tough decision for him. Andy was convinced that the policy route was the most potentially impactful and interesting, so that's the path he was going to pursue. The tough choice was how to do it. Should he go right from undergraduate studies into a master's in public health, an MPH, and then right off to Washington? or go to medical school and get his MD first, then get his MPH. Andy knew that in the medical culture, MDs are revered, and their counsel on all things medical bears much more weight than that of non-MDs. He didn't actually believe that getting an MD would make him a smarter or more effective policymaker, but he really wanted to make a difference and was willing to consider the 8 to 10 years it would take to enhance his credibility, 4 years to get an MD, and 4 to 6 years from residency to licensing. This was a tough decision for him to make. Ten years felt like an incredibly long time to wait to get started on what he wanted to do. Andy kept going around and around in his head, but he couldn't land on a choice that he felt good about. As soon as he'd decide to get his MPH now and get started, he'd say, but if they don't listen to me, that head start doesn't do any good. And as soon as he'd land on going to med school, he'd say, but ten years is just too long to wait. Who knows what will happen by then? Andy kept chasing his own thoughts in an endless circle. He said he felt as if his brain were stuck on a hamster wheel, squeaking around and around all night long. Andy stopped thinking about the decision and grokked it. As he did so, he discovered that med school Andy felt better than just policy school Andy. While walking around being the guy becoming a doctor, med school Andy found himself worried about those 10 years, but then thinking, yeah, it's a long time but I'm really committed to this goal of impacting healthcare. I know that the path I'm taking means I'm doing everything I can to prepare well and give it my best shot. The problems will still be huge a decade from now. I'm not going to miss it. I just don't think I could live with myself if I didn't do my best.
By contrast, when the question about what if no one pays any attention to me without an MD occurred to Chess Policy School Andy, he didn't have a good answer. All he could do was feel lousy about it. So he chose to go to med school and dedicate the next 10 years to becoming a licensed MD, almost solely in order to be a more credible policymaker in the future. Okay, choice made, job done, right? Wrong. Andy still had to implement step four, to let go and move on. Andy quickly realized why we gave this name to step four. The secret to letting go is moving on. Merely letting go is an incredibly hard thing to do. Some would say it's impossible. For example, right now, put anything in your mind's eye except a blue horse. Whatever you do, do not think about or see a blue horse. No spotted blue horse, no blue unicorn, no blue pygmy pony with a red and white striped saddle and a pink ribbon on its tail. Please keep not seeing a blue horse for the next 60 seconds. Okay, how did you do? If you're like everybody we've ever worked with, you were stampeded by blue horses. That's the problem with letting go. It's more of an inaction than an action. And your brain just hates that, the same way nature abhors a vacuum. So the key to letting go is to move on and grab something else. Put your attention on something, not off something. How was Andy going to let go of the worry and distraction that he was wasting a decade of his life? How was he going to let go of all those images of getting his MPH in just two years and jogging the halls of Congress, becoming the hot new policy wonk in healthcare? Andy realized that the way out of it is into it and asked, how can I move on and move into becoming a doctor? As soon as he did that, Andy realized that his med school Andy choice gave him his backup plan for free, becoming a doctor. He knew that medical students actually start doing medicine within the first few years of their training, and all the residency years are spent doing clinical work. What kind of specialties would be most relevant to healthcare policy? What medical schools had the strongest ties to Washington and an affiliated MPH program? What kind of care-providing institutions would teach him the most? A local clinic? A big hospital? Small towns? Cities? As soon as he began to embrace what his medical training could contribute and how he could make the most of it, he had tons of ideas and lots of interesting questions to pursue. By imagining his way into moving on, he gave his mind permission to let go. And he came up with lots of ways to have prototype conversations and prototype experiences related to healthcare policy in his role as a medical student and a resident. Andy was a star pupil. No more hamster wheel. Designers don't agonize. They don't dream about what could have been. They don't spin their wheels. And they don't waste their futures by hoping for a better past. Life designers see the adventure in whatever life they are currently building and living into. This is how you choose happiness. And really, is there any other choice?